a thousand generations of Jedi Knights and the Guardians of Peace, Justice, Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic, episode 1.23, A Song of Sith and Jedi. I'm Kelsey, that's Luke, <laughs> and there's always a little bit of truth in legends. <laughs> that's awesome. That's an awesome title. Um, yes, we are here with um, Emmett, who uh, goes by uh, at Poor Quentin on um, on Twitter, and uh, he uh, co-hosts... Um, is it not a podcast of Ice and Fire? Did I mess that up? Yeah, the not a cast. I host that with a guy who goes by Jeff Hartline, aka uh, Brendan Beefish, one of our one of the more obnoxious people on Twitter. A title he's very proud of. And yeah, <laughs> we we go through a song of Ice and Fire. The books Game of Thrones are based off of one chapter at a time. We've been doing that for for a couple of years now. And uh, thanks for having me on. I've been looking forward to it. Well, yeah, we. Uh, I, I'm glad you uh, glad you could come on. I um. You know, I just uh, I just keep going through and looking for um, you know references to Rob's will in sure. uh, from from uh, from a Game of Thrones, and you know that because I was a I was a trust and estates attorney, so like when I saw that in the I books, see. I was like, I was like, oh yeah, this is great, like this is going to be a big thing, and then I looked online and nobody was talking about it. I mean, this uh, this was back in like 2011, so like sure. you know. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, these assholes, nobody wants to talk about Rob's will. And then, you know, like I started to see more stuff about it, but like, that was always the part that was neat to me. And then I could never find anybody who wanted to talk about it, probably because wills and estates generally are really. It doesn't necessarily lend itself to the big sweeping drama for sure. But I mean, one of the things I always liked about the Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones stuff is the extreme granularity a lot of people get into yes. and a yes. lot of different angles people approach it from. And I think that you talked yeah. about it before is the extreme attachment to secondary and tertiary characters. Oh, yeah. It's just wonderful and adorable. Oh, uh, yeah. Bl- Blood Raven. Exactly. Blood Raven. I fucking love that guy. Why? Right. I have no idea. Because he's, he's a wizard. A that's times, why. exactly. And he's like a you know 150 years old. But people will yeah. uh, fall in love with characters who are only around for a couple of paragraphs, which is something I've always. Uh, I don't. I'm not a. I haven't. I'm not hugely versed in the extended universe of Star Wars. But what I've dipped my toe into, I also, I also just love the 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 full extent of secondary characters you can get into with that. Because that's something I yeah. I love in any story. Yeah. It. It to me it it lends itself kind of uh you know to to like the kind of lore dumps that um mm-hmm. that that martin really likes in his writing um which is one of the reasons i like reading him uh because i i also can't stop talking about how good the food is um sure um you know i grew but, up on Redwall, and those books are just endless descriptions of meals yeah oh, okay. I've, I've heard that i've never i've never read them but yeah oh Who sorry kelsey what'd you say yeah you'll get an opportunity to okay. into Redwall in a few years it's very much um, very much has that that feel, right? Where you're telling an epic story and then to sort of, I don't know why, I don't know if it's like a contractual obligation, you pause and there's one chapter where they talk about a feat and that's true for every book. Um, but so one of the things uh, I think that's really, obviously we're here on a podcast about the Old Republic, which is all um, minor characters that people get super attached to. Um, and we like, mm-hmm. will 
if you've been listening for a long time, you'll know we'll go over when we see new traces of old canon and present canon um, and little things mm-hmm. that, that trickle through. And I think one of the things um, I think perhaps uh, that we can spend some time on today is looking at the various way, right? You're translating a translating canon to a different medium. And in Star Wars, it's all you have film canon first and then everything else is grafted on after that. But with game with uh, Song of Ice and Fire, it's the reverse, right? Where there's a sort of, um, there's an existing written canon that then gets distilled and then because they have to keep going in that regular timeline the show just speeds ahead so um let's start there do you want to uh, talk a little bit about like um i guess how you wrote like your relation of the going through chapter by chapter to maybe experiencing the canon of the show yeah that's a good question i mean it's a, a you know the going chapter by chapter you can focus on really uh, minute details and stuff that's being worked in the background to come up later. And the, the show, I don't, you know, I don't think the drop in quality was necessarily as huge as, as a lot of people made it out at the time, but I think there's, there was definitely a transformation in which they had that scaffolding to work from and when they didn't. And yeah, that was pretty palpable. Not that they always relied on every single detail Martin threw into the books, but it was, you know, it's, it's, they had a, a solid bed of plot to work from. And I think it, it became, it became clear when the the more kind of map details were were being done hastily. Not that that necessarily is the most important thing, but it it, it stood out in relation to to earlier seasons in that regard. And I think even people who didn't pick up on the books, I think even people who didn't read the books necessarily, I think picked up on that. Yeah, it's I I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, of the books, and um, I, I like the show for the most part um, until I guess maybe like partway through season seven or eight or whatever, but we're, we're not here to, uh, you know, to, sure. to, to, you know, to parse that, that everybody's been up and down that road a few hundred times. Um, but I, I thought so, something that I did think was interesting. Um, and I think it's, uh, I think somebody, it may have been, uh, it may have been Jeff who, uh, who said it. Um, but it's like the, um, the show, is kind of like uh the canon uh of star wars and the books you know the world book and then obviously martin's books um are like kind of the the eu or the legend stuff or whatever and and the movies as well and you know i always thought it was interesting how they you know they were trying to like translate it into um <sighs> You're trying to distill stuff and and yeah you're right like in the fir- in the in the earlier seasons you can kind of tell because they have more of the meat on the bone to work through with um you know with martin's books and then and then you know later it kind of uh <clears throat> you know it kind of fell off or whatever so um i think there you know i think there's there's kind of an interesting parallel there uh between between those two even though you know it's it's obviously different because martin's still working on the books and you know et cetera, et cetera. sure that adds a certain incomplete tension i mean i guess you could say there's some comparisons between you know in the years between return of the jedi and phantom menace but a that's not really a weight in the same way because it's not a guarantee mm-hmm. the story's gonna resume in the same fashion and because the eu is just exploding in so many different directions at that time mm-hmm. so it's, it's 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 not quite the same but the, the distillation process, yeah, is key, and it's like it's. I think it's easier to 
take a complex writing framework and then boil it down to TV, then you have to come up with the writing framework entirely in your head and then boil it down. Like there's the scene, there's a scene in the season two of Game of Thrones where Tyrion is messing with all the the, the advisors one by one, mm -hmm. or, you know, dropping some information with each one to see which which of them is is, is going to feed it to Cersei. And it's a great kind of shortening of what is a very long and elaborate and great scene in the books, but they have that kind of work from so they had something to melt down. And I think it's a lot harder when you have to come up with the infra, you know, the, the the background, the world building, and the storytelling at the same time. I think that was that was a big shift, and you know, obviously that's that's part of the craft. But it was it was it's a it's it's really hard to do both of those things at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so now you said you, um, you you said you haven't gotten into much of the EU. What? Um, what from the Star Wars EU um, have you gotten into? Uh, I played Knights of the Old Republic, both of them, uh, with, with my friends pretty extensively. And I've uh, read Timothy Zahn books, a couple of uh, books that, that uh, came my way. My mom was a librarian, and when she, she found out I liked something, she was always uh, dumping books at me. But I never went through it in a concentrated way, the way I like you know, spent time with Tolkien. Yeah. So a lot of my knowledge of it is, is fragment. There's some stuff I know and some stuff I don't. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um... Yeah, we, uh, you know, we've done uh, nights one and nights two. Um, I was listening <laughs> to something. Yeah, I was. It was a uh, bring me back to to my high school days pretty strongly. It was great. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, um, had a lot of fun with that. So, like you were talking about, um, just like random one off characters that you really what that you really liked. Um, did you have any of those in mind in Star Wars, or was that just? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Um, hmm, thinking back, I mean, I like you know the the w watching bits of the Mandalorian made me think of um, of Candorous Ordo again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that like the, again a lot a lot of the blast of the past stuff when I watch when I watch modern Star Wars things. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I always have a soft spot uh, for for Wookies, so you know whenever Zalbar shows up, so. Uh, um, you know, gotta love a big dog, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, the, the fun of, of, of expanding Star Wars is, you know, the, what, what, expanding on the shadow of this very strong kind of central helix of the characters that everyone knows so well. So yeah. there's, there's so much possibility and I always love that. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, I, I sure you don't have any inside info but do you think that is something that might happen in the future with a song of ice and fire like they maybe do like you know they have like prequel books written by other people or something like that yeah i mean george is not a uh, particularly in love with with fan fiction so mm -hmm. i mean obviously that's not the same thing as as all yeah. books under you know under uh someone else's name but yeah, he 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 loves kind of being at the the center of the empire himself so much that I don't know, I don't know if he uh, would be authorizing that within his lifetime. Which you know, yeah. Beyond that is a, is a question that's no fun to speculate about. But that would be a totally different ball game, obviously. Yeah, just wanted to make sure you avoid yeah, the that's, whole that's interesting. Crap. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, there's no good options at, at a certain point. Like you know, there's a there, there's a inherently ghoulish quality to like talking about like what if he writes another Duncan Egg book. It's like, yeah, but do we want him to spend any time on? And not that that's in our control either. Yeah, those are the those are the kind of conversations that that happen around around those books a lot these days, which is is, is definitely morbid. But um, 
yeah there's a, there's, there's there's a weird sentimental attachment to it because it is all still caught up in one dude it's it's you know i mean you know it's not like he's bill watterson or something he's not like a you know he's not like thoreau out there he's taking full charge of everything himself he definitely has people who help him and work on stuff himself when you get to like stuff like the world book or fire and blood is his targaryen histories mm-hmm. but a lot of it is still just caught up in him yeah that's that's interesting to uh to contrast with uh with george lucas because sure. you know everything always had to go through him to some extent but he wasn't directly um working on pretty much anything in the eu other than you know like approving ideas and stuff like that and um i think he fairly kind of famously hated or didn't hate but he was not a big fan of of the eu and in the prequels you can kind of see that he tries to um kind of roll back some of it because you know in a new hope obi-wan says you know for a thousand generations the jedi have been the defenders of peace and justice and then in uh, attack of the clones uh young obi-wan says that the republic is like a thousand years old like so he he made them like contradictory on purpose and then because of how star wars is and how it was and everything they just decided to invent like a whole like little war to explain like the difference between those two statements there's like a whole like all the new sith war stuff new sith wars stuff from like 2000 bby to 1000 bby is completely there to explain those two statements in attack of the clones and a new hope (laughs) Well, it's a kind yeah, of funny. That, yeah, that sense of puncturing the canon by the author is interesting that way, and everyone's got to respond. Yeah, and it's like a creation of canon. What were you saying, Kelsey? It's, yeah, it's like creation of canon, not exactly by committee. That seems more of a deliberative process, but it's sort of a kind of very freewheeling. Um, there's George is the clear architect of the original trilogy and like the prequel trilogy, but beyond that he is sort of at most supervising the creation of canon around it. And then that's a role handed off to, to Disney. And what you see, right, is you get wildly divergent stuff. I mean, and it's, and that's why you have to like Star Wars formally grades and separates its canons. Um, and we did, uh, did an episode a while, well, a while it, back on like, um, I'm like Splinter of the Mind's Eye, right? Which is like before the second movie. It's like after, mm. like just after the first one is out, there's this like stab at what is a story in this universe and none of it is really, like maybe one thing mentioned and it gets carried over into any of the films later. Yeah. I remember reading that one. Yeah. I remember reading that when my mom showed that to me after I liked Empire because she'd heard it was a, it was a, a branch not taken. Yeah, um, and it's uh, it, it's it's interesting because like the the EU like it not only varies in tone and style, but it varies like vastly in quality. Like you you know one of the one of the new Jedi Order books could be pretty good, and then the next one is just utter garbage. You know, and I'm not. I'm not picking on that specifically. I'm just using it as an example, but it's like, um, 
you have uh, you have all this varying stuff, and I always joke about Kevin J. Anderson because I liked what he did with Tales of the Jedi, but I understand a lot of people aren't fans of, of his books, especially the stuff he did on like Dune with the Butlerian Jihad and all that. But sure. um, <laughs> but uh, you know, you just you get this you get this varying quality uh, and varying style. So yeah, I could I could understand why. Uh, why Martin might not be a fan of that. Definitely. But, you know, he, he follows his own kind of uh, instincts towards gargantuan writing in directions that it may as well be kind of a, a more, uh, even like novella format. Like he's talked about, you know, mm-hmm. Arya is spending time in the book still in the the, the ninja Venice city of, of Bravo. <laughs> she hangs out in for a few seasons in the show and it's like you know i like i really i love fantasy set in renaissance settings and i wish there was more of it like there's a couple of great book series but i really love that setting kind of pushing that direction away from purely medieval settings Mm -hmm. so i kind of like that stuff but it's also just kind of very kind of formulaic like you have to go and you know confront the void within yourself Arya, it's kind of obvious as happened in the show and george has said george martin has said that he has like dozens of chapters of like alternate stories in that city and dealing with like elections there and politics and it's like that you know that's that seems like the kind of thing you might want to hand off to someone because that's interesting and that setting is cool. But, you know, we all know Arya's event like she did in, in the show. She's eventually coming home. So may, maybe that's maybe that stuff is you, you need to allow that to be spun off and there could be something potentially really interesting there. Yeah. I mean, she's got to come back and kill the night, the, the night king. Exactly. She's, she's got sh- to come back with her, her perfect dagger skills and put them to work. I mean, we all know this. Yeah. I don't know. That's yeah. It's a, it's an ending. I'll say that. Um, I, I actually, I, I actually I don't like envy, that part of it. But yeah. yeah, I don't. You know, a lot of a lot of my reaction to, to the end of Game of Thrones now is like, I don't envy what you had to do. I don't. You know, some decisions yeah. that would maybe scratch my head, but and ending yeah. a story that's you know half in progress in a much denser form is is not exactly a not exactly an enviable task. Yeah, but you know, you you talk about it and and it is. Interesting because, you know, Martin says he has these these chapters written, um, you know, extensively on like elections and things like that. But I mean, you know, there are there are entire EU books dedicated to, you know, like explaining lines from from these movies. And, and I mean, yeah, you, you definitely if that was something, you know, that that I guess he really wanted to get out there, you know, I guess, I mean, obviously I guess they could do another world book or whatever, but um, you know that, yeah, you, you would think that they might, uh, they might pass that off. Yeah. And he, I mean, he just hasn't completed his equivalent of the original trilogy yet, you know, yeah. the full, the full circle story from which everything else cleaves to and from, you know, it's, it's, it's weird to be, be reading about the, you know, the equivalent of, of, of previous generations of, of Jedi and Sith before we know what happens to the Luke Skywalker equivalent. You know what I mean? We don't have the end yeah. of Grand Stark story yet, really. And that is probably, for my money, the most Star Wars-influenced stuff in the books is uh, Bran and Bloodraven. Oh, is that why I like Bran so much, even though his chapters aren't maybe that good? <laughs> Well, yeah, that's that's the weird conflict with Bran is like he's clearly the main character of an earlier version of that story, like the one that, yeah. was, you know, originally George R. R. Martin said he was going to write a trilogy that this was going to be three books. And, you know, like the Red Wedding was going to happen in the first book and then Danny was going to come back and to do, you know, fiery shenanigans in the second book. 
Mm-hmm. And as an expanded, I think, because he just fell in love with a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff that I really enjoy too. But Bran became, was still very much like the, you know, the, the Tolkien Star Wars King Arthur, here's your, here's your protagonist boy. And that yeah, you can definitely tell the story in the statements, but I still, I still uh, love Bran on the whole. And that stuff, uh, I, I think, very much feels like George Martin going back to the Star Wars well for inspiration, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, Brand Brand does have that that quality, but there are other things, you know, that that Martin includes, like the um, Valyrian steel, which is, it, I mean, it's not the exact same thing as a lightsaber because obviously a lightsaber has a much different look to it um, than other swords do. But you know, he has he has the stuff that like Valyrian steel, which is based on real, you know, stuff that that happened uh in the past with like damascus steel but um you know he he includes those 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 elements and it's interesting to see him try to deal with the um constraints of not being of not having like hyperspace or something like that to move around on uh you know how he has to how he has to deal with um having danny over in uh marine or whatever for however many books it's been now for a couple at least but yeah i mean there's i mean there's there's wonderful insane theories that uh, a song of ice and fire is secretly sci-fi and that there's spaceships behind the scenes and stuff which are, are great but not true but you, i mean george has written sci-fi before and you can definitely see the influence on stuff stannis's mm-hmm. sword in the books really does like glow like a lightsaber like it has intense red fire from within it that freaks mm-hmm. everyone out and that everyone reacts to and I think you can you can see his his love of, of of visuals like that. And I also think that you know one of the I think one one of the, one of the explanations when you go searching for explanations about why the prequels are actually good, and one of the things I you know find interesting and in, in the stuff of, of the EU I have I have gotten into is the interesting echoes of uh, Roman history, and that is a kind of big you know framework for a lot of history that goes on in Star Wars, and that's something that stands out really strongly in the in the books of A Song of Ice and Fire when. Danny goes to the cities of Slaver's Bay. And I, you know, this isn't really a thing in the show, and I understand why visually it might just look jarring, but a lot of the big signifiers when she goes there are actually Roman, not really anything to do with the Middle East. It's a lot of a lot of to, uh, togas and pillars and a lot of the stuff that, you know, looks like the stuff in Attack of the Clones. It's 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 <laughs> those visual signifiers, I think, are, are something that kind of stands out as as something that I think George Lucas sometimes pretentiously was trying to do is, is point the finger at America in a lot of ways in his movies and say, you know, this is not, you know, I'm not literally talking about America, but I'm trying to cast America as the empire and America as the new Rome in this way. And I think that's something George R. R. Martin tries to do too. Well, I think something yeah. that we, I mean, Lucas, oh, go ahead, Kelsey. Yeah, so Sorry. something we see kind of across um, both, both series, right. Is the idea of a, um, not even a golden age, right? But like the kind of the collapse at the end of an age. It's really very much about the sort of uh, like storm of disillusion of a past way of being. And that's like the prequels get to tell the story of the fall and the original trilogy gets to talk about what is it like for people kind of scrambling to restore anything afterwards. But you also see it, right? Where it's very clear, right? That there's, there's powerful menace and a deep, kind of failure um, projected sort of throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, it's a really a sort of interesting resonance that when you're like these, these crafting these works and they're obviously writing in slightly different eras of 
of U.S. history, but you get this real kind of ominous sense of dread of how they feel and how they go back to like our same kind of central metaphors, right? Like Game of Thrones gets to tell pre-Enlightenment um, collapse and then and also Roman collapse, and so does uh, Lucas. I think that's a, that's a great point. That sense of historical kind of generational nostalgia that stands out, yeah, really strongly for both of them. Because yeah, I mean, the equivalent of going back to the prequels in the Song of Ice and Fire world would be the story of Rhaegar and Lyanna and Robert's Rebellion. And that generation is just, everyone who survived that generation has just like not been able to move past their 20s at all. You know, Robert, <laughs> Robert's just gotten fat and obsessed with the past and Ned is, barely keeps from curling into a fetal position and weeping. And Jamie is so messed up. And even Oberyn, who's like this, you know, dashing, swirling, ultimate Lothario, even he is really screwed up about what happened to his family back during that war. Yeah. And, you know, it's that uh, that, that moment in the first Star Wars movie when you get Obi-Wan's looking down and just talking about it, and then the dark times, and then the Empire, and you hear the lightsaber go out, you know. It's that, that yeah. sense of, oh, I, my, my presence is just so shabby compared to the, the glory of my past, which I have mythologized all out of proportion now anyway, because it wasn't really like that, but... Yeah, I mean, that's a, I think that's a, a good way to get pathos out of genre fiction situations is you have this dazzling other world, the people who are living in it are like, nah, it used to be better, though. This is this is crap. <laughs> yeah, it's that's funny. Um, it's it's interesting that you mentioned Oberyn because um, I think he he has a lot uh, in common with the Jedi in the original trilogy that we see, you know, Obi-Wan and, and Yoda. And I mean, they're, I mean, like they're clearly, you know, suffering from something, you know, they're two of the last of their kind. And, you know, Oberyn has, you know, spent so many years in the books, you know, running around fe feeding his life with like hedonistic lifestyles and things like that but he's still never really processed like all of the stuff that went on and you kind of start to see obi-wan process some in a new hope because he's telling you know a story about how grand it used to be and on the one hand yeah he's mythologizing it but on the other hand he's like fuck all my friends are dead and i've been living out on this goddamn sand trap for 20 years this shit sucks yeah it's great it's and it's a great collision between you know, Luke's youthful idealism and Obi-Wan. Yeah. And obviously, you know, this is this is well-worn territory, but it's it's something that stands out in in the Song of Ice and Fire as well as the, the younger generation with their songs and stories. And then the older generation mm -hmm. just went through that whole process. And there's a yeah, there's a great part in, in the books when Catelyn is going down to to Renly's camp to try to negotiate with him and she's just looking at all his his young knights laughing and getting drunk and getting laid and she's like, Oh, you're all gonna die horribly. Yeah. And I know yeah. that it happened to everyone I knew 15 years ago, the last time we all did this. And that's yeah, a horrible circularity. Yeah, they're all either dead or they wish they were dead, but they can't admit that. <laughs> right, you exactly. Like, just walking yeah. dead inside. Like uh, uh, Stannis, who is just one of my favorite characters because he's just such, he's just overreacted to everything that went wrong in his life and just can't can't move on and can't relate to the present at all. So he just he just thoroughly calcifies. And yeah, I can imagine him, you know, being a he's got his his horrible island, just like Luke ends up in his his sad island of sadness in The Last Jedi, because, you know, you just mm. you just get to be, you feel like a hermit. And it's you know, you're, you're retreating from all, all that glory is a is a great theme. Yeah, it's so. I guess Bloodraven doesn't really fit as well with the Jedi because 
they aren't as uh, nefarious or uh, <laughs> untrustworthy as he is, but like someone like Kreia is a good, um, I guess, cross connection for Bloodraven because you know he's obviously like a duplicitous shithead, but he just has this like ridiculous power, and you know Bran is learning from him and everything, and it's you know it it twists the um the the well-worn uh you know world weary master you know takes on the last apprentice you know that we saw in like a new hope and the force awakens and all that sort of stuff um and it turns it on its head and it, it actually like the master is also like a uh they have ulterior motives and uh they're also kind of evil and you know, done a lot of bad stuff, you know, so you, you sure, get this, sure. uh, you get this, uh, this interesting dichotomy. And I think, George, I think Lucas and Martin both do that really well, where they will, uh, they will turn something on its head. Uh, you know, obviously Martin loves to do that with, you know, things like the red wedding and Ned Stark's death and all that. So. Yeah, and it's uh, Cray is a, a good comparison for Blood Raven actually, because there's that sinister quality, but a very kind of you're still drawn to them, and so mm-hmm. that's definitely present. But yeah, and I think you know, thinking about you know yeah, how uh, George R. Martin handles twists, and that's being one of his big aspects. And thinking, you know, a lot of what he does is just disguise what's coming in in the in the form of another structure. Like as people point out, like mm-hmm. you now if if Ned wasn't a POV character and he doesn't get a lot of story to himself. You'd look at him and go, oh, it's Obi-Wan. Oh, it's a father figure. It's a mentor who's clearly going to die because yeah. his kids. Are, but because he gets a mystery to solve and it's his best friend who's the king, that doesn't become clear until you're well past it. And uh, somewhat in the show, in a, in a lot in the book, there's a ton of setup for the Red Wedding because there are all these little pieces have to be in place for it even to work. Yeah. Um, but none of that registers as, you know, as intense foreshadowing to when you're just going through it. And I think that uh, you know that it's that difference between uh, something just being purely shocking versus something being, you know, release of suspense, and that's that can be mm-hmm. a fine line. But that's something that I think I think separates good from mediocre storytelling a lot of times. And um, you know, obviously, you get to the, the the shock of of big twists in Star Wars, but I think a lot of those are ones that feel you know fulfilling and feel like they've they've advanced the story forward instead of just being something that blows your mind once and that's mm-hmm. i think what a lot of people like in a song of ice and fire and liked for a while in game of thrones yeah so i guess you're a good you're a good person to ask about this because i mean there's a i mean if if movies are ever made again um there's a <laughs> good chance that star wars will go to Knights of the Old Republic and there's already been um you know one report that they are that someone is writing a a treatment of it um a script for a future movie and something that uh I think you know Star Wars fans who have thought about a Knights of the Old Republic movie think about is if you're telling that story do you like do you try and do the Revan reveal on and this is spoilers by the way I if you haven't listened to the rest of the show and you're just listening to this this is spoilers for Knights of the Old Republic uh now uh, do do you um do you do the Revan reveal and include it like that? Because on the one hand, people who have played the game absolutely know who Revan is, but the number of people who played the game pales in comparison to the number of people who would see the movie. 
just like how I mean Ned Stark's death had been out there for what 15 years when the show finally aired um and it was still like crazy shocking to people so I mean you know do you, I don't know am I am I coming through is this do do you think I guess I guess what I'm saying is do you think they could do the same thing with Revan like that or is that you know it's just too much of a I think you got to try to preserve yeah surprise as much as you can and yeah, that would be such a, such a, I can imagine that being so effective. And so, even though I know it, I mean, it's still effective for me watching it, even in a movie form, mm-hmm. if they did it right. And um, yeah, I think about, you know, Ned's execution, there's just, uh, you know, you always, there's something you can add to an adaptation, I think that can make it work. Like in, in the, in the books, we see Ned's execution completely from Arya's eyes and we don't, mm-hmm. we're not in his head for any of it. And in the show, they had that little bit where he sees Ari on the statue and shouts for the guy to go save her and sees that she's gone. Yeah. And that's, a, I really like that. I think that was a really nice little grace note. It doesn't completely change, you know, the horror of what's happening, obviously, but it's something that makes it unique and was something that people who were really familiar with from the books didn't see coming. And so I think, yeah, I would, I would hope that they would have the, have the wherewithal to make it their own and still try to preserve the, the power of the reveal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. That's pretty much my thinking as well. That's uh yeah. The any uh, I think cinematic adaptation of it too has the very um and this is maybe not as big of a challenge as I'm thinking of it right now, but the fact that when that the difference from a character you play as to like a character you see on screen, right? Like how do you translate mm-hmm. that? And that's sure. almost certainly like a language of like a film a cinematic language question but i think it's really interesting to think because even if you get that reveal it's not like if it'll come across as i think fundamentally different even to people who are like super well versed and expecting it because it's not learning you did these things uh, which is such such i think a big golf yeah i i've thought about it before and i, I think I think that's definitely the biggest hurdle of it. Uh, you're right, Kelsey, because how do you go from like, oh, it, it's me, I'm Revan, to, you know, doing that reveal, you know, without it, without it seeming, you know, corny or or cringy or something like that. Because I mean, Revan is the main character of the first game, and I mean he's kind of the main character of the second game too, in a lot of ways, because um, you're just playing in his shadow. So you know, how do you do that um, without making it weird? Because you need to see Revan, you need to see the mask, you, you know, you need to see stuff like that, and then you know, I mean, I'm sure that it it obviously can be done because you know, great uh, reveals and stuff like that have been done, but. I, I don't I don't know how you do it personally, but I I really hope to find out. I hope they I hope they do it one day. Yeah, I mean the standard to avoid is the the last Airbender movie, right? That's that's oh, the geez, yeah. in terms of uh, like condensing and you know trying to have twists happen in a smaller format. That's I mean obviously that's a movie's a cautionary tale in literally every way that it can be, but th- that that especially you know so you don't want to you don't want to foul that up. Exactly. I just. Um... I don't know how they do it, but I would love to, I would love, because I want them to try it because if it works, it's amazing. Like it, you know, that is a huge thing. If you can pull off a reveal like that, that even shocks like half or, you know, 
three quarters of the audience or whatever. But, you know, if you can do that, that, you know, makes it all the more special, you know, kind of like how, you know, Empire did the reveal, you know, the reveal back then. Obviously, they're not it's not an apples to apples comparison, but, you know, I think you can I think you can go down that road. Kelsey's right. There'd have to be some strange play with perspective to make the movie up to the reveal not feel like a weird mess. So that would that would that would take some serious contemplation on the part of whoever's writing it. Yeah, um, I believe her name is Leda Caligridis. I'm sorry, it, her last name I think is Greek, and I do not speak Greek. I apologize. I'm sure she's not listening to this, but you know, just in case. Yeah. Anyway, um yeah, so um I guess uh one other thing that I wanted to mention because it's so close to my heart is that you love Revenge of the Sith. Is that correct? I do. I do. Okay. Uh yeah, yeah I I've, I've watched that one a bunch of times. It's it's kind of addictive. I must I must shamefully admit. I don't I don't know that you should shamefully admit it at all. You need to you need to proclaim it from the mountaintops. Um no, I, I love I love Revenge of the Sith. I it you know it has its moments where it's corny and bad, but you know I I love it on the whole, and I think uh, <laughs> I don't know people people always think that's weird. They're like you know why would you like it? I'm like I don't know why do you like any of them? Yeah, it's got it this... speaks to me exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's got this very singular tone and dread, and just everything is 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 operatic, and I love how much of it is at night. And uh, and it's the Emperor's movie to a large degree, which is just, mm-hmm. which is just wonderful. Just as soon as as soon as he turns around on that ship at the start, you know, to match the end of Jedi, it's like uh, it, it always has me from that point forward. I'm like, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's Palpatine's show, and his 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 just delight in it, I always enjoy. Well, I think it does the very rare thing for any work on this scale, where it concludes a kind of singular vision for a long work, right? Like the George Lucas is very clearly the direct author of the prequel trilogy, even more so than I think the original trilogy, you can see his, his plotting. And like, there's obviously the uh, deep limitations that come in some of the choices made in the prequel, but I think Sith as a whole pulls it together to put an end that feels like the end you want for that kind of that that setup it puts together all the pieces it has the sort of abrupt shift there's and there's stuff we've gone into there's plenty of stuff to say about but it really feels like it gets the culmination of a seizure of power um at the complete expense of the jedi you feel the jedi broken at the end of it in a way where i don't think you get really any kind of strong feeling about the universe it's in that really um almost really even like any of the sequels yeah it's i on the one hand i i mean i think you're absolutely right kelsey it's and it it was even more of the summation of a work because at the time i don't think anyone thought that they would do a sequel trilogy like i don't i don't think that that was uh really a consideration for anyone until like probably disney started looking into it i know lucas had written some stuff but i don't think anyone seriously considered it until then um so i mean in that way it was it was the summation because there were going to be six movies and that's all we were going to have and that was the summation of them um 
if not chronologically, at least uh, thematically. And it's interesting because uh, I think earlier uh, Quentin said, you know, it's uh, Lucas, is, or not Quentin, I'm sorry, Emmett uh, said, <laughs> sorry, um, uh, said, you know, Lucas wasn't exactly saying, you know, he wasn't exactly implicating America or whatever and, um, in some of his stuff. And I think that's true in some ways, but to me, Revenge of the Sith is, is in some ways a movie that is just about the Iraq war. Like there are plot points in that and, and parts of that where it's just like, yes, this is, this is Lucas saying even more clearly than he did in, return of the jedi you know that he is an anti-war person and you know he's against the iraq war and everything like that and i think the more you look back on it i mean maybe it's my old age you know just softening things um but it just feels like it gets everything in there thematically and it does show you how someone with good intentions ends up becoming uh, an authoritarian, a fascist, uh, you know, however you want to categorize Anakin at that point, um, or Darth Vader at that point. But um, so I think they, you know, they, they did a really good job building on that. And to me, like, even if you don't like the the movie overall, I think that I think that there's there's a lot to like there. And I mean, to me, I really really like the 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 duel on Mustafar is very affecting to me. And I think a lot of that has to do with you know obviously how much you care about the characters. And I, I love you and McGregor as Obi Wan. So it's you know it's just I, I think it does a good job of bringing all of those things together. And like Kelsey said, it, it it's a summation. And you know, in other ways, it's a political movie. And in other ways, it's a kids movie where a guy kills a bunch of children with a lightsaber <laughs> the best kind of kids movie <laughs> but it's, you know it's like the return to oz the you know dark 80s kind of kids movie but yeah right. yeah, yeah yeah my but, mom my mom will never forgive lucas for that ever she's so <laughs> mad she's so mad about it like uh, she was telling she was telling me the other day on the phone she's because i mean they're, they're older so they get to see a lot of people right now um obviously and you know so they were like watching the star wars movies she's like we were gonna watch the third prequel movie but then i remembered he just he just kills all those kids and i couldn't watch it not and i mean like i i get it like you know you don't want to watch the movie because that upsets you i get that but on the other hand it's just man what a what a what a directorial choice just Oh my god! <laughs> it's a, there's an anger that I think comes through actually really well, and there's a sense of yeah of corruption and sadness, and the Jedi just you know constantly being, you know pushing Anakin to spy, which of course you know you get why they do it, but it it just kind of proves the Emperor's point for them. And I love, and in a lot of ways I just love that movie visually, and I just think it's so mm-hmm. telling that at the time one of the big complaints about the prequels is that they're like just visual nightmares, and there's just too much stuff on the screen. And now, by comparison, they look like they were made in the 20s compared to like blockbusters over the last couple of years. Yeah, in terms of where the visuals have gone, and that there's, they they seem quaint now in a way that I actually really enjoy. And, and Sith has just a lot of that. Where some some of the action scenes are very frenetic, but a lot of it is just like the camera's back and you can see everything that's happening. And yeah. you know, now as an aged man at the end of my life, I uh, I, I appreciate those things more. And yeah, and, yeah, and I, I always love uh, Ewan McGregor because he seems to have a, a handle on the dialogue, I think, more than anyone else. 
uh, I think, you know, p playing a slightly pompous character helps with that. I think, you know, Obi-Wan in the prequel thinks a little too highly of himself. And so I think the fact that he talks that way makes perfect sense. <laughs> well, it's also one of the few times where he yeah. gets to be, like, he is a a knight at the height of a golden age. And why wouldn't everything be going great? Like he gets to fully revel sure, sure. in how corny powerful he is all the time. Um, and it, 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 it's really just a fantastic like reverse engineering of what height does the original Obi-Wan have to fall to, um, to get where he is like what, what or fall from um, you can, you can see it, right? Like if you're talking about how um, so much of uh, Song of Ice and Fire, right, is the characters who are like scarred by this, by their like heroic age earlier. And you get Obi-Wan set up in this to be perfectly poised and heroic really up until like halfway through Sith where it all comes tumbling down and we got to see him age in real time. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what happened. I mean, like, the thing about, I think Ewan does a really good job with, um, he like chews scenery and so does Ian McDermott, uh, who plays Palpatine. Um, like they both revel in like the corny names and, you know, like Ewan McGregor's like just shit eating grin. Like you just want to slap the shit out of that dude, but it's like, it's perfect. Like that is what a guy that evil looks like you know that you know and um and i think when you get to the duel at the end and obi-wan is finally coming to terms with the fact that yeah anakin is the one doing this but obi-wan fucked up big time like and yeah too much was asked of him and everything like that but you know at the end one of the last things he says to Anakin, he's like, I failed you. This, you know, this is my fault. And, and to me, that's always so, um, so, so moving to me, just, I mean, in part because of what Ewan does, but in the same time we've watched in the last 45 minutes or 50 minutes, him going from, I'm going to end the clone wars I'm going to kill Grievous. I'm telling Anakin, may the force be with you. And I will see him in, you know, a few days and then we're going to party and everything, you know, and, and all that. But, you know, 45 minutes later and it's, it's the end of his world, the end of his universe, really. Yeah, it's well said. It's all comes crumbling down, like you said. So of course he has to go live a, a, a minimalist life as a hermit because, like Kelsey said, he was at the kind of the apex of this golden age. And that's, I like the, the, the decadence of Revenge of the Sith. It's just something I really like that there's just, you know, weird light sources everywhere. And the, you know, the, the <laughs> aspects in the other prequels too, but especially in Sith because it spends so much time on Coruscant and yeah. kind of meeting places. And, and that, that, uh, that, that makes Ewan McGregor and Ian McDormand, the very florid performances kind of, kind of fit into that world. And like, there's of course the scene that even people who don't like the movie generally love the opera house scene and just the, mm -hmm. just the, the, just the visual, just, just weirdness of it and how, and how little, how little is explained. And that's just, that's a, that's a quality that's both nice in itself and also leaves people free to write their own things and fill in the gaps as, as, as they want to, which I really, you know, appreciate. Plus, you know, plus it gave us the, the Darth Plagueis, you know, endless source of memes from that. So really, <laughs> how, can, how can we not, not love that scene? But yeah, like, you know, that scene is just, it's so, 
so creepy and odd and there's just nothing like it in the original trilogy and there couldn't be and those are the best moments of the prequels are when you're you know you go like okay so this is this is something that we, we could never have seen in the world of you know job of the hut stinking terrible palace where everything is broken and <laughs> I, 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 those aspects are wonderful that's funny i've never i've never really contrasted those two in my head but that's that is a good point just how like broken down and rickety everything looks in in the original trilogy and i mean there's a reason for that because it was made in the 70s and early 80 you know um but uh at the same time i mean like i don't think they've done it perfectly but i think they've done a lot to contextualize you know why things look like that in the prequels and why stuff doesn't look like that 20 years 20 years later um and it's uh (laughs) it's it's interesting that um, that they uh, you were talking about the uh, the Plagueis Darth Plagueis scene, and it's interesting to contrast like where that came from, where it started, to where it ended up. Because originally, like there's a uh, Revenge of the Sith behind the scenes book where you can see the original script from the first treatment that that Lucas did, and uh, Palpatine tells him the story and the end of it is so you could say in a way I'm your father um, you know echoing what, what Vader said in Empire and you know to to turn that from you know he, they they remove that and they meet they leave it more like implied because if you ever look in the background of the opera the uh, motif is uh, sperm swimming toward egg exactly yep. intentionally i mean that's intentionally why it's there it um you know it's just like they they had all this stuff in there about you know so i kind of am your father and then at the end they took it out and like now it's like for fans it's like a point of contention sometimes which is just really funny to me yeah it's a great it's subtlety which is not something you necessarily always associate with george lucas but sometimes he he's, he's actually really good <laughs> At at at, weave, at weaving that in, and there there are moments, unfortunately, elsewhere, and in in the original trilogy too, where there just is too much time dwelling on a single point that clearly obsessed him. But yeah, but moments of fluidity like that are just are just are are, are wonderful. And yes, in Sith, yeah, Sith, yeah, obviously it has its its overblown moments too. But it's 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 really it's, it's consistent and engaging, and and you know it's there's the. The, the, the weird kind of foppish dialogue kind of works for me because you think about like the serial adventures from the older series and those were kind of had Victorian roots. So it kind of makes sense mm-hmm. that people running around in these adventures have these kind of, you know, like, oh, what ho kind of dialogue to them. But it, <laughs> it's not cool. And I get why people don't like it on that basis. It's very much not impressive, but it, it does it does fit for me. Oh, yeah. I just like the idea. And I mean, it's please do not anyone take this as like it's canon, but I like, because it's not, but I like the idea that like Palpatine made up the Plagueis thing on the spot. Like his real master's name was like Ted and he just died of old age. Um, and Palpatine's like, yeah, uh, this guy, Darth, um, uh, he's just looking around like plague is, uh, yeah, that'll work. Um, so anyway, you know, it's just like, He's just bullshitting this entire story about like some guy who could like <laughs> do immaculate conceptions through the force. He really truly is yeah, it's, the it's, it's, Smith of the universe. 
He's just that in tune. He's just, he's just, you know, he flicks the butterfly's wings over here and Shmi's belly swells over there. That's just, that's just how it works. He's very, he's very new age. He's got a lot of crystals. <laughs> Kyber, Kyber. Nova. That is such a, Ky- yeah, yes, exactly. Exactly. When I showed my wife the prequels for the first time, uh, we've been married for a while. Um, she's not a huge Star Wars fan, uh, but she tolerates it for me. But she was like, wait a minute, a virgin birth? Like, she was like, no, I'm, I'm tired of this biblical shit. I'm like, just just, just let it slide. Just just let this one slide. Because, like, I mean, she and I both you know, grew up uh, in in evangelical christianity it's just like no no i've heard this story before i don't want to hear it again i am done i don't i don't want your virgin birth shit can't blame her yeah i mean that's well that's something that's also in uh in song of ice and fire is the like the urge to combine and this is going to be my version of every story i've ever read ever every single yeah. story i've ever encountered and that's something that's all over both the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy is george lucas like i like 24 things and they're all going in i'm gonna have a ben her here yep. this is going to be the blade runner part and this is going to be the metropolis part and you know that can that can there's a that can get a lot but it's 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 it's, it's i think it's just a funny thing about star wars is that a lot of the the discourse about the original trilogy is oh look at this part borrowed from kurosawa and look at this part borrowed from old adventure serials but if you're a kid watching it of course you don't know any of that stuff and you're likely more more likely to hear about it the other way around like you know yeah you first hear about the japanese movies because of star wars you don't go to star wars and see ah that's from that japanese movie and you know that's a i like that that influence coming back is something that i really like in a lot of pop culture like there's a ton of bands that i never would have listened to if i hadn't listened to nirvana first and then I yeah. heard Nirvana liked those bands, so I listen to those bands now. Yeah, I, something I like about Lucas and Martin is that, like me, they both need a good editor, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's <laughs> don't there's nothing wrong with that at all. You know, like Luke Lucas needed a, Lucas needed a good editor, and 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 Martin needs a good editor. You know, like I mean, people are like these books are too long, and I'm like, listen, George, I need to hear more about this like random story you've got this guy telling on page 310 you know i just yep same it just it <laughs> explodes exponentially in all directions and it's like at that point just like you know i'm like go go just go the dickens model just give us a chapter a month just publish a chapter in harper <laughs> yeah something just something yeah maybe oh, get over the get over the huge novel format and just break it up a bit well, I mean, by the time by the time it gets ready to publish, it's only only going to come out digital because we won't have that much paper left. So, right, exactly. We'll just be beaming it into our brains, Blood Raven style, one oh, page at a time. So, I do I do have to ask you a question, a very specific question about a song of ice and fire. Did you come up with the theory about um, about uh, Euron Greyjoy? And the the eldritch horror thing, because like I've seen it attributed to you like two in, like two or three places really. Like, is that a theory that you first came up with like after Martin released those chapters, or is that just something where people are just you know? A couple people were writing up some stuff about Euron, but I wrote a ton pulling a lot of stuff together uh, before okay. George read that chapter from the Winter Winter called The Forsaken. And that kind of exploded and led to a, a lot of my theories getting passed around by some people because it lined up with it pretty well. 
but yeah yes. that's a that's an aspect of a song of ice and fire i really like and i get why a lot of people don't because it's just it's again like george going and now cosmic horror is going to show up and now it's going to have i'm going to have a lovecraft part to the story so for a lot of people i get why that just seems random but i i love that stuff in general and i like that it just kind of shows up and conquers this part yeah. of the story and there is also a, a kind of a, a Star Wars-y aspect to it, too, because there's a lot of hints that Bloodraven uh, trained Euron, too, before mm -hmm. he got the Bran, and that, like, Euron was his, his screw-up, you know, Anakin first model, and that he's desperately <laughs> trying to redeem himself with Bran now because he messed up so bad. So, you know, that's, it's not, that hasn't been confirmed in the books. It's kind of in the background, but that is something I think that could, that could be interesting if, if brought to the fore. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree that. And that that's actually how I got to this question because we were talking about Blood Raven and I, and, and I was like, I remember the Euron thing and I was like, oh yeah, I remember because I had heard that and it's just so, you know, just so interesting to me that uh, it, it's, it's just nice when you say something and like a creator or someone who uh, works on that confirms it in, you know, you've got this theory and then they're like, yes, here's this other thing I was doing that confirms your theory. And you're like, yes, I can be smug about this for just a minute. Exactly. Nice little victory lap. No, that's a, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, it's, yeah, that's fun stuff. Exactly. Well, um, Emmett, thank you, uh, so much for coming on the show. Uh, Kelsey, did you, did you have anything else you wanted to ask? No, I think we're, I think we're pretty set to, to wrap. Uh, Emmett, where can people find your stuff? You can find me uh, at poor Quentin on Twitter. And uh, like I, like I said, I'm half of the, the not a cast podcast with the uh, at Brendan B fish, AKA Jeff Hartline. And you can find our stuff at a uh, not a cast, a S O I A F dot podbean.com. That's where all our available episodes are. And we're uh, around at not a cast, a S O I A F on Twitter. So that's where you can find all the stuff we're doing. And then, yeah, thanks for having me on. I was looking forward to it. This was great. Awesome. Well, yeah, anytime I uh, get to talk to someone who loves lore, that's uh, that's good enough for me. <laughs> and thank you for uh, listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Sorry, Luke, did you have anything else or can I... Are we good? <laughs> I did not. I was actually going to go into the outro if you weren't going to, but since you got it, All right, I'm going good. to shut my mouth now. It's good. It's good to attend. You know, it's a work in progress. Very this this mismatch came in the various. So, thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. You can follow us on Twitter at PhotorPod. Email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. And if there's a topic you want us to cover, don't hesitate to reach out. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.